0: 19, please. Genesis chapter 19. As we study this morning, the judgment of Sodom. In Genesis chapter 6, we observe a world that had become so exceedingly wicked that in, in the language of accommodation, the text there read, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth and he was grieved in his heart. As in our current passage, there was one righteous man that stood out among all this wicked generation, and that was, of course, Noah. And there are comparisons to be made between Noah and Lot, to be sure. Uh, Both were considered righteous, even though the righteousness of Noah is stressed, while the righteousness of Lot in this chapter is only implied, it's never stated. Both lived in times of maximum rejection of divine authority. Noah on a global scale, Lot was on a local scale, and both had, shall I call them, unfortunate sexual episodes associated with drunkenness after their escapes. So there are similarities between Noah in Genesis chapter 6 and Lot in Genesis chapter 19, but there are differences as well. In Genesis chapter 6, the flood is universal. In Genesis chapter 19, the destruction of Sodom, Gomorrah, and the cities of the plain is a local destruction. And it appears as though that Lot was spared more because of his association with Abraham than because of his own goodness and his own righteousness. The parallel is actually a bit stronger between Noah and Abraham than it is between Lot and Noah. However, there is a link between these two. As a brief aside, there are also parallels between the account in Genesis chapter 19 and this rather bizarre account that we read in Judges chapter 19 of the Levite and his concubine. There are parallels there, but time doesn't allow us to explore those today. You may want to do uh, part of your devotional reading in, in Judges chapter 19 in the, in the next week. Perhaps you'll see what I'm talking about there. I would just advise you not to do it right before bedtime because Judges chapter 19 is is a pretty tough chapter, and so it, wouldn't, it doesn't make for really good bedtime reading, or it, it probably wouldn't make for the best reading around the kitchen table with your kids before they go out to play I want you to review it first before you do that. It's the Word of God, and it it is uh, divinely inspired, but it's a bit rough. Essentially, Genesis 19, the chapter that we study today, is a chapter of destruction and of deliverance. The, The chapter develops really along four lines, and these are the four. First, the fact that God will judge degenerate behavior. That's a fact. He's going to do it. But second, we also see Lot's close attachment to this wicked society. The third line of development is that God is merciful, and he spares Lot from the destruction. And then the fourth line of development is a bit shocking. We'll see the rebirth of Sodom in that cave, in that mountain cave. The principle of divine judgment upon the wicked is not a popular one but it is a biblical one. At the same time, the believer may be confident that God is righteous, and he's fair, and he's good, and he's just, and he won't destroy the righteous with the wicked. Now, that's a significant point of application before we even get into the text itself for our culture for today. Because if, if, you're, if you're looking around, if you've, if you've read newspapers or the Internet, or if you've watched television, or if you've gone to a movie, you know that we, too, live in a culture that is not as righteous as we would like it to be, and certainly not as righteous as God would like it to be, and that's putting it mildly, isn't it? So we live in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation ourselves. And we, like Lot, while we have positional righteousness, we don't necessarily always live experientially in a righteous way. So we need to take comfort in the fact that God is righteous and fair and just, and he's not going to destroy the righteous with the wicked. And that's an important thing that we need to remember as we see, see things in our own culture appearing to go downhill fairly quickly. You'll recall, I hope, how the last chapter ended last Sunday with Abraham, aware that God is going to destroy Sodom, making intercession that God might spare his nephew Lot. <coughs> On the surface, it looks like Abraham's desire is that Sodom and the cities of the plain be spared. But as we get through this chapter, we're going to see the real desire behind this petition is the rescue of his nephew. Not so much the rescue of the cities, but the rescue of his nephew. You remember how he almost bargained with God in this prayer? If there are 50 righteous found in the city, will you spare it? Will you, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? That terminology is going to come up in chapter 19 as well. And God says, that's okay, but but Abraham wasn't finished. He wasn't quite sure. Remember how he goes 45, 40, 30, 20, 10, almost like a countdown, and then at 10 he stops. Because he assumed that with Lot and his family and the sons-in-laws and daughters and all that, there got to be at least 10 righteous people in this city. But he was wrong, wasn't he? The city gets destroyed because there weren't 10 righteous people in the city. But as we'll see in today's narrative, Lot is spared. So the desire behind the petition is going to be granted, although the petition itself to say the city is not going to be granted. And this is something we need to remember when we pray as well. God's smarter than we are. He's he's better than we are. He's more pure than we are. He's more righteous than we are. He has our best interest in mind, and sometimes he knows better than we do what it is that's going to further his plan and make us happy. Now, we're so bold and proud of ourselves that we think nobody can know better than me what's going to make us happy. I have my goals. I have my objectives in life. They're even written down from time to time. And I'm going to have a plan and work my plan and all those things that we talk about. We all have, th- we all have desires. We think, if this would just happen, then I would be happy. And God says, I know better than you what's going to make you happy. Far better than you what's going to make you happy. And that's what's going to happen today. He's going to turn down the petition, but he's going to grant the desire that's behind the petition. Isn't God good? He loves you that much. He's not going to get you on a technicality and say, no, I'm not doing that. No, that's not what you asked for. You see, God knows. He knows exactly what's going to bring contentment to us. And he answers Abraham's prayer with regard to the desire. The idea for us is, do we really trust him? Do we really believe that he's omniscient? Do we really believe that he's omnipotent? Do, do we really believe that we can trust God to have our best interests in mind? Or do we have, at the, at the end of the day, do we lack trust? At the end of the day, do we really not believe that he's ultimately good? You know, Father's Day is a very special day. It ought to be a very special day because we ought to look to the example that our Father set for us about the love, of the, heavily, the love that the Heavenly Father has for us. And I know many in this room experienced that. I certainly did. And I know some of you, unfortunately, have not necessarily experienced that. It, and I, f, I feel very saddened over that. Because one of the things that a father should do for their children is to model the love and the integrity and the fairness and the righteousness and the consistency of God for their children. And so I do, I do have sympathies if that wasn't the case with you. But I know some of us had parents that were that way, and we can appreciate that very much. Do we trust our Heavenly Father to fill in the gaps, even if our earthly father may, may not have done things like that? Maybe our earthly fathers were inconsistent. Guess what? All of us earthly fathers are earthly fathers, and we're not perfect. Even though sometimes our kids tell us that we are, we know deep down that we're not. And we've done things that aren't, that aren't necessarily consistent, even though we may love our children. But listen, we can't superimpose whatever our fathers may or may not have, a way that they may or may not have interacted with us on the way the Heavenly Father interacts with us. He has your best interest in mind, and he loves you deeply. And we're going to see that here in this passage today, how he doesn't answer the specific petition of Abraham. The city is going to be destroyed. And he's not trying to get Abraham on a technicality. He loves Abraham. So he still rescues Lot, which is the ultimate desire behind the petition. And we can take great comfort in that. Now, again, this this operates on four lines. The first line of development in this narrative comes in verses 1 through 14, and that is that God will judge degenerate behavior. Now, I know we've heard this story before, but listen again carefully as if it's the first time you've ever heard it. Now, the two angels, now these are... Men in some translations, but the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet, that you may rise early and go on your way. They said, However, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. In verse 3, yet he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them into the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with a man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. Now I know what you're thinking. I just got through saying that Noah was a righteous man. Hang in there. There's a reason why I've said that. And I wouldn't say it except for the New Testament says it. So hang in there for the rest of this reading. In verse 9, but they said, Stand aside. Furthermore, they said, This one came in as an alien, and already he's acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they came and pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them, and they shut the door, and they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness both great and small so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Now in verse 12. Then the men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son, our son-in-law, and your sons, and your daughters, and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place. Their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, and said, Up! Get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons in law to be jesting. So, again, the first line of development in this narrative, and by the way, we're going to cover the entire chapter, uh, the entirety of chapter 19 this morning, because it's one unit. It's best covered in one setting. So, we're going to do this kind of in an overview fashion, but there are still some details that I'd like to make sure that we get because it'll help us to understand what's going on better. So, the first line of development. God will judge degenerate behavior. Now, a couple of observations about these verses, if you will. When the narrative opens, we find Lot sitting at the gate of the city. Uh, The gate of the city was a place where business was transacted and where legal issues were settled and disputes were settled. It's a place where the elders of the city would have sat, people who were acting as judges in that city. Now, Lot is a relative newcomer here. The text is going to, when these guys get upset with him, they say, Hey, listen, you're just an alien. You're acting like our judge. But apparently he was at least somewhat respected by these degenerate people. Now, I don't know if that's a compliment or not. It would probably be better if degenerate people didn't accept you and respect you, at least in one sense. But Lot is somewhat respected, and we see that. So don't let that detail pass you by as we open this reading. When 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 he sees these people, he, just like Abraham did in the previous chapter, he exercises hospitality on his guests. Now, we said last week that it looks very much like Abraham had an inkling of who these guests were relatively early. There's no such indication here that Lot knows who these two men are. I don't think that he knows that they're angels. Now, the text tells us that they're angels, but the rest of the time they're referred to, or at least most of the time they're referred to as men. So unlike last week, I'm not at all sure that Lot knew, like Abraham did, about the significance of his guest. Also, the Lord's not here. It's the two that were with the Lord. When he sees them, he bows his face to the ground. This is an oriental custom. It's, it's, even, it's even in vogue in the Orient today. Sometimes Americans have a hard time with this, especially if you, run around, if you hang around with some, some people from the Orient and, and you see them bow to each other and you say, well, I'm not bowing to anybody. Well, that's just their way of shaking hands. And especially if you bow with your head all the way to the ground, it's their way of showing extreme respect Now, if you're bowing to an adversary, you bow like this. You look him in the eye the whole time because you don't want him to punch you while you're bowing to them. But that's just part of that particular culture. And so Lot does exercise the normative hospitality of his day. Now, when we get to verse 3, we're going to see, or we do see, the hospitality that he shows these two men is not quite as grandiose as the hospitality that Abraham had showed them in the previous chapter. That could be because Lot wasn't, wasn't so impressed with who they were, and it also could be because Abraham may have been more, much more wealthy than Lot. Either way, but we don't see quite as much of a, of a massive feast. The baked unleavened bread is, is, uh, is in indicative of, he, just, he gave them a nice meal, but nothing to write home about. So we see that Lot is a judge of the city, he's respected, and he shows them hospitality. Now it's interesting to note that this chapter never calls Lot a righteous man. Although I have done that already, it never states that he's a righteous man. And what I read to you just now, if you have any sensibilities, civilities, if you have any morality in you at all, you're going to question the fact that Lot was a righteous man. Because on this Father's Day, did you see what he did as we read this text, in order to place hospitality at the highest level of his rung of things that are important to him, he offers his two virgin daughters to these degenerate men. Now here, take them. Now in our culture, Lot needed a whoop it. Somebody needed to get a hold of Lot and beat some sense into him. He wasn't the best father. He was, he was exalting hospitality above his responsibility as a father. And by the way, I don't care if it's that culture or this one or another one or the next one. This is this is transcultural he had the responsibility to take care of his two girls and he doesn't do it he's not acting righteously in any way and we can and again we can't use the excuse well maybe that's just the cultural norm of the day as we've already seen in this fiasco with with Hagar earlier god's standards don't necessarily comp- uh, are not necessarily in compliance with cultural standards. If a cultural standard is is out of compliance with the divine standard, the divine standard takes precedent. I hope we see that. God is not going to lower himself say, you know what? That particular culture in America, they are really big into this particular standard. I think I'm going to lower my standard a little bit, and we'll just make that the norm from here on out. We may do that in some of our learning institutions. Well, that's, that's the new norm. That's the new A. What used to be a C is the new A, or whatever they do. I don't know. But God doesn't do that. So we can't use the excuse, oh, that's just the way they did it. Just poor Lot. No, Lot's a jerk with a capital J. Let's just get that straight up front. However, listen to this. When the New Testament gives a commentary on this episode, this is a part of what it says in 2 Peter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, this is God, the Holy Spirit speaking, If he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, Lot, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. Now this is a bit shocking, isn't it? This man's a believer? Because we're talking about, obviously, positional righteousness, not experiential righteousness. There is no way on God's green earth you can call what Lot did there experientially righteous. But when the New Testament comments on it, it calls him righteous Lot. It blows me away. Actually, it calls him that twice. Righteous Lot and that righteous man. You see, Lot was what we call in theology positionally righteous. He wasn't experientially righteous. There are a lot of people today that would say, if if you didn't have that passage in the New Testament, they would have said, no way, no way is Lot a believer. No way is Lot in heaven today because do you see what he did? That's a dangerous theology, my friends. We've got to be very, very careful there. A person's going to heaven not because of what they do after salvation, because of a single decision they make. At some point in time in their life to humble themselves, and to trust Jesus Christ to forgive their sins, to forgive the penalty of sin, and to grant them eternal life. Salvation is by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. It's, it's not by works, lest any man should boast. It's not attained by works, and it's not secured by works, and it doesn't continue by means of our works. Now, this is no excuse for us to be unrighteous to say, well, hey, listen, if salvation is not by works, if if it's not secured by works, if it's not maintained by works, then I can just do whatever I want to. No, that's not what the Bible says. In fact, if we try that kind of nonsense, you're going to find your, as my daddy used to tell me, your tail's going to be torn up fairly regularly. God will get out his divine belt, and he will whip us because he loves us, and he wants to beat that kind of nonsense out of us. That's called divine discipline. You know the worst thing that could ever happen to you? And I know you're thinking of some things right now. What what I'm fixing to tell you is probably not what you just thought of, but the worst thing that can ever happen to you is God to quit disciplining you. Because that means if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus and he stops disciplining you, that means you're on the way out the door, my friend, in in what the New Testament calls the sin leading to death. So there there are consequences to our behavior, but Lot is a righteous man. He's called a righteous man because he's righteous positionally. Not because he's acting righteously. He's acting like, well, he's acting like a jerk. And that's the nicest thing I can say without having John having to edit it later and me feel bad about it. He's acting like a jerk. And if I was there, I'd like to take that man outside and hug him and tell him how much I love him and then punch him right in the mouth. Because the the thing that he did to those daughters, you're going to see his daughters do something to him later. And once we realize what Lot had done to them before, no wonder what kind of model do these girls have for godly behavior. The answer is none. Yet he's a righteous man. You know, it all boils down to something your mom probably told you a long time ago and that is thoroughly biblical. Do not be deceived. Evil companions corrupt good morals. And look at where Lot has been living for apparently some time now. The Lord's going to take Lot out of Sodom. And that's one thing for him to do that. But it's another thing entirely for Sodom to be taken out of Lot. Two different things. The Lord's going to rescue Lot from Sodom, but Sodom's in Lot. And we're going to see that Sodom stays in Lot, and Sodom stays in his daughters as well. Now again here we find in these 14 verses the behavior of the Sodomites labeled as wicked. And we need to be careful here again. These men... The men of Sodom are animals in their actions, acting completely outside the divinely prescribed prescriptions for sexual behavior. Sexual behavior is a wonderful thing, provided it is done within the boundaries that God has set up. It's a beautiful and it's a wonderful thing, and we should never shy away from that. But when it's outside of the boundaries that God has set up, it becomes something very ugly. And these men are acting so far outside the boundaries we can hardly, hardly see them anymore. They're so far outside the boundaries. They actually had two crimes. One was sexual perversion. But don't miss this. Their second crime was the violent application of their sexual perversion. And again, I want to warn you, as I have to because of the new laws of the United States, because I have no desire to go to jail for teaching the Word of God, but I'm going to teach it. But I want you to understand that homosexuality is a sin according to the word of God. And I'm not going to equivocate about that. But nothing that I say should be understood to encourage you to go perform any violence against a homosexual or or anybody out there. If you do that, you're the the greater sinner of the two. Just understand that. You, You never do something to somebody simply because they're homosexual. You should love them and give them the gospel and recognize that it's sin. But you don't start calling... Something that's a sin, not a sin, just because it's becoming more normative in our culture. God doesn't work that way. Woe to them who call evil good and good evil. It just doesn't work that way. That's the height of irrationality. Now, God is going to deal with all forms of degeneracy in his own time and his own way. So it's not for us to do that. And that includes the crime of rape as well. So we have no right to go take matters into our own hands. Now, if you're a law enforcement official, if you're a judge, then you may play a part of all that. But if you're a citizen, then you allow the, the normal civil and criminal courts to take their action. Now, verses 12 and 13, the men, these angels, warn Lot that the city is about to be destroyed. When we get to 14, and Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, and said... You see, this is one of those scenes that takes place outside of this home. Most of this chapter, at least the first 14 verses, is going to take place in one scene. It's like a one-act play or a one-scene play. Have you, have you seen those maybe small theaters where you go in and there's just one set? And everything happens there. And those are kind of neat sometimes. But this all happens in one scene, except for there's, now there's two parts. You, you really have, if you, were, if you were watching, say, a play of this, you'd have one scene that was inside the home, and then you'd have a scene at the front door. Now, inside the home, at least, is somewhat representative of righteousness and the place of safety and comfort and rescue. Outside of that home is where all the the bad things are happening. That's where these degenerate men live. That's where the violence is is going to to be taking place. You see, inside the home, you have the conversations going on. Outside the home, you have Lot go outside and into that culture, and that's when these men almost overtake him. You also see something that's... It's almost like a yeah moment, and that's when the, the angels jerk him back in the door. The people try to break the door, and then the angels strike them in with blindness. It's that, by that time, Lot should have known who he was dealing with, but not before that time. So, verse nine, verse fourteen rather occurs outside the home, which leads us to the conclusion that at least by this time the crowd has dispersed. So, after the crowd disperses, and, and maybe. I'm not so sure, but perhaps being struck with blindness might have encouraged them to go ahead and go on home somehow. <laughs> you know, might have, this is not the right place to attack. But the crowd has dispersed, and Lot goes out and looks for his sons-in-law. Now, we can't be dogmatic about this, but if we use the motif of inside the house being the place of rescue and righteousness, outside the house being the place of unrighteousness and destruction, you can already tell before the sons-in-law laugh at him that they're not among the righteous. They, too, had too much of Sodom in them, not just experientially, but positionally as well. They were so entrenched in the culture of corruption that they were, it appears, incapable of comprehending or adhering to this warning. They just laugh. Destruction, who, when, why? Why why would God destroy us? You see, some people get so immersed in wickedness and in in evil that they can't even tell anymore. When you've come that far, you're in big trouble. And if you ever recognize that, then you need to get down on your knees and ask for God to bring you back quickly. But these sons-in-laws apparently were not righteous either experientially or positionally. They were part of the problem, and they're going to be part of the destruction. Now, that's the first line of development. God is going to judge wickedness. Now, there's a second line of development that's equally as important, and that's Lot's attachment to this wicked society. Lot doesn't want to leave. Listen to these verses, beginning in verse 15. And when morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Take up your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. By the way, that's the same terminology that was used back in chapter 18, verse 23, when Abraham said, Are you going to sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Same terminology. Verse 16, but he hesitated. What? But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. And it came about when they brought them outside that one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you. Do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains, lest you be swept away. verse 18, but Lot said to them, you know, when you see that word, but that there's a problem, there ought not to be any but there. It ought to be like, yes, sir. Quickly, which, which door do you want me to go out? Which, which gate should I exit? But Lot said to them, oh no, my Lords. Now this is a, this is not, uh, this is not Yahweh. This is a generic Hebrew term that means uh, sir, a term of respect, but that would be like a military person speaking to a, to their superior officer saying, "No, no, sir." After a command has been given, that's usually not well received. You know, I guess it's possible it could be, but not typically, from what I understand. Do uh, do colonels appreciate a private saying, "No, no, sir." I don't think so. Well, that's what's happening here. They came about, they had brought them outside, that one said, Escape for your life, do not look behind you, do not stay anywhere in the valley, escape to the mountains, lest you be swept away. But Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have magnified your loving kindness which you have shown to me by giving me my life, but I can't escape to the mountains, lest disaster overtake me and I die. Now where did they just tell him he's supposed to go? They're the ones going to do the destroying. He said, and no, I can't go there. Too dangerous for me up there, can't do that. Now behold, this town is near enough for me to flee to, and it's small. Please let me escape there. Is it not small that my life shall be saved? And he said to him, Behold, I grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the town was called Zoar, which actually means little. Now what what Lot is doing is he's arguing, this town's so insignificant. It's just a little bitty bump in the road, you know, just a little stop in the highway that can't be significant enough for God to destroy. How about just letting me go there? That could have been laziness, too. This is closer than the mountains. Uh, I don't know exactly what Lot's motivation was, but I do. I'm just baffled by the the fact that he hesitates and argues with the people who are rescuing him. I hear about that from firemen and police officers. They're trying to rescue somebody, and the, the person argues with them about being rescued. You see that in film sometimes. And there's always, at least in film, it works out the way we'd always like to see it work out in in person, but it never can. You know, in in film, the the, the masculine, full of testosterone movie stars trying to rescue somebody, say Mel Gibson, and the person doesn't want to be rescued. What does Mel do? Well, their argument, bam, punches them in the face, knocks them out, pulls them over their shoulder, and pulls them out. That's not what happens here although you almost would like for that angel to say, are you, are you talking to me? I just came here to, to warn you, and now you're arguing about where you're going to go. You almost wish you'd just, just touch him with something and put him over his shoulder and carry him out, and that's not exactly what happens. But he goes to this town called Zoar, this town that is insignificant. Even though he's been warned by these men, these angels, who had just inflicted blindness on the men, the, the, the degenerate men of Sodom the night before, Even in spite of that, Lot would rather not leave. Did you catch this in that reading? He had to be drugged out of Sodom. Again, Lot's going to be rescued from Sodom, but a lot of Sodom's going to still be in Lot. I, I doubt he would have known how much, but a lot of Sodom is still in Lot. He hesitates, he has to be drugged to safety. But because of God's compassion on Lot, but for Abraham's sake, he's forced into being rescued. It almost sounds oxymoronic, doesn't it? Forced into being rescued. He was rescued against his will. And verse 29 will strongly imply that this had more to do with Abraham than it does with Lot. (laughs) But but even in the process of escaping, he's still negotiating. He, He wants a different destination. I don't like that safe house. I don't like. I don't like where you're putting me up. I'd like something a little nicer. Thank you very much. No, the mountains were too far. How about this little town of Zoar? There's no need to, for you to destroy that. So, because God loves Abraham, and this is my view. Because God loves Abraham, he, these angels give in to this request. So that's the second line of attachment. Lot is a uh, line of development. Lot is very attached to this wicked culture. Bad company corrupts good morals. Your mom was right. That's scriptural too, by the way, 1 Corinthians. Now there's a third line of development, and that is God's merciful sparing of Lot from the destruction. Now not everybody in Lot's family is spared, and you probably already know this from Sunday school days. There's somebody in his family that's not going to be spared, but Lot will be along with the two daughters. In verse 23, the sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Now, this could be mid morning, you know, mid to late morning, somewhere in that maybe midday. But remember, the angels are saying we're not going to destroy the city until you get to where you're going. So it's not like they're, it's not like the wife is going to be destroyed because she didn't have time to get to Zoar. There's another reason for that. The sun had risen over the earth when the lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew the cities of the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and toward all the land of the valley. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came about, when God destroyed the cities of the valley, that God remembered Abraham. And sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Now, Don't you know Abraham had to have chills go up his spine when he goes to that high place and looks out over and sees the equivalent, if it was in today's culture, of that mushroom cloud. The, the, the cloud of smoke coming from the distance, and he knows God has done what he said he was going to do. But Abram trusts God. And the petition, while well not granted... The desire behind the petition is granted. God is merciful. There's speculation, of course, as to what kind of judgment this is. Someone uh, speculates some sort of earthquake combined with a volcano or maybe a volcano from another place that that was spewing its contents onto these cities of the plain. We don't know. This is a supernatural disaster, though. This is a God-caused disaster that's part of judgment. On degeneracy and wickedness, and it is—it's complete. If you've—if you've been down to that part of the world, or or seen pictures of that part of the world, it's—it's it's very likely. Although, I don't know that it's hundred percent for sure, but it's very likely that these cities of the plain are now under the Dead Sea, or at least a portion of them. And if they're not there, they're right around that area. And if—if if you haven't seen pictures, go go to your computer this afternoon and Google that area. Don't Google Sodom. There's no telling what'll come up. But 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 but, but Google. Google the cities of the plain, or Google the Dead Sea, and and you'll see you'll see even today there's no vegetation there. It is hot, and it is dry, and it is barren. I was I was at that location, or at least uh, not a stone's throw, but maybe a 30 thirty-eight six shell from there, at one point. And, a couple years ago, and, and it, it was decided that some of us would climb up the mountain of Masada. And I only went because Bill Graves went <laughs> <laughs> over his wife's objection. But I, I went, and I'll tell you what, it was like 110 degrees out there that day. I got, I got two, two-thirds of the way up and had to stop. My son Bruce was with me. He was already up at the top. He'd been up there for probably half an hour. He, he just bounded up. Some of the younger people just bounded up. I was pulling up the hind end of the whole thing. It's hot and it's barren. There's not, a, there's not an ounce of shade anywhere around there. It's a it's a tough place. It's interesting. I, I kept stopping along the way because I, I knew my, my heart needed to rest. I got two-thirds or maybe three-quarters of the way up, and I stopped, and I was overheated, and my heart didn't slow down. And I thought in my mind, uh-oh. That's not that's not a good sign. My water was already out. Everybody was gone. And uh, and uh, Bruce sent some water back down for me. Didn't bring it back down, but sent it back down with somebody else. I don't blame him. Once you get up the top, you don't want to come back down. Masada is real high. He gets he sends water down. Somebody else gets it. It's the wrong person. So my friend Bill Graves, I don't guess he's here. I don't see him. But anyway, Bill Graves comes back. Now that's an act of love. He comes back, gets that water from the wrong kid, takes it to me and walks me all the way up the top. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here today. I'd have died of heat stroke on top of that hill because there's no shade, there's no water, there's no nothing. It's totally, completely barren in that part of the world. When God judges something, oh boy, does he do a number on it. And that's His judgment demonstrates what he thinks about those things that, that in far too many circles in our culture are starting to be considered culturally normative. We, we better be very, very careful about that. Woe to those who call evil good, or even who call evil okay. That's not the way God looks at it. It's a very barren place today because of what, what happened there a long time ago. Now, we've been talking about Sodom, but it's not just Sodom that was destroyed, Gomorrah was destroyed. All the cities in that area were destroyed, except for little Zoar, this little village, this little insignificant village Zoar. But all the rest of the cities were destroyed, which indicates that the rest of the cities were also involved in that particular form of degeneracy. Now Lot's wife, speaking of her, she hasn't been mentioned up till now. We don't know where he married her. It it could have been back when he was with Abraham. The text just didn't mention it. She could have been a a sodomite herself. So he he could have married her when he got there. We're not really sure how long he's been there, at least not precisely. We have an idea. But we we haven't heard anything of her up until now. But we do know this about her. In fact, and it's sad that this is really the only thing we know about Lot's wife, and that's that she couldn't obey the command of the Lord. just couldn't do it. Because just like Lot had a lot of sodom left in, in him, This poor lady had a lot of Sodom left in her, and she's looking back. Apparently she's looking back longingly, not just out of curiosity, but longingly. I think there's more to it than just a casual, uh, curious look. It's maybe symbolically for her to look back and, and see what it is she's left behind, to see the destruction of that which she loved so much. The terminology that she became a pillar of salt also could be—it's—it's it's a little unclear—but also could mean that she was completely covered in salt, encased in salt. But at any rate, she died along with those who were being judged because she would not obey the command of the Lord. You know, when when Abraham was counting down to ten, he might not have even been close in terms of how many righteous people there were that were there, and I'm talking about just positionally righteous people. It could have been one or perhaps if we counted the daughters maybe three but it's hard to say now the fourth and final development is is a sad story but it is it's not totally unexpected because we've, ar- we've already seen how Sodom is, is very much a part of Lot Sodom was certainly a part of Lot's wife and now we're going to see that Sodom is a big part of Lot's daughters as well they were rescued from that location but They took their attitude with them. I call this fourth and final line of development the rebirth of Sodom in the cave. Read the final verses with me, beginning in verse 30. And Lot went up from Zoar and stayed in the mountains. Well, that's where he's supposed to go in the first place. Did you notice that? He went up from Zoar and stayed in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him. For he was afraid to stay in Zoar, and he stayed in a cave, and his two, he and his two daughters. Now, let me, let me just briefly comment on that, and, and I'll finish the reading. But, but first of all, he's supposed to be in the mountains in the first place. He wouldn't have had to leave there if he, had, if he wouldn't have done all this negotiation. Why was he afraid? Well, perhaps if there's any survivors, the word might get out. The, the, the whole city was destroyed, but this one fellow got out. Something must be wrong with him. But he's just not where he's supposed to be, so he, he goes up there with his two daughters. Then the firstborn said to the younger... Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and let us lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drunk with wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And it came about on the morrow that the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let, let Let me pause for just one moment. Sometimes, in, and I don't say this in, in any critical way, in any critical way whatsoever, but on occasion, two or three times a year, I'm asked why we don't have the young kids in this group. And it's because I need to be able to speak freely to an adult audience, or to an, to an audience that's at least old enough to understand these kind of things. I don't want to have to beat around the bu- bush and be euphemistic. It's, it's just so much better, at least the, the overwhelming majority of the time, it's so much better if if the kiddos are in groups where they're taught things at their particular age level, okay? So so I thought about this, and I was, I was hopeful that that it would work out, and I think it, it looks like it has. So, uh, But anyway, th- there's a reason behind the policies that we have here. Th- this is the Word of God, though. The Word of God is a very realistic uh, appraisal of life. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with their father, and he, he did not know when she lay down or when she arose, And it came about on the morrow that the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, last night I lay with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him, so that we may preserve our family through our father. Verse 35, So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. Verse 37, And the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. Moab. And he's the father of the Moabites to this day. And as for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. And he is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. You know, this is the last time we're going to hear of Lot in the Old Testament. There is one reference to the descendants of Lot, but, but this is the last time we hear of him. It's a sad commentary. For all we know, Lot really never had any clue as to why God spared him. I mean, perhaps he had some idea with the angels, but, but it looks to me like his head is spinning here. Isn't it ironic that Lot left Abraham because, remember, the division of, because of the argument between the men? Lot leaves Abraham, and the criteria for Lot's leaving was because he this lush, incredible plain that where his animals would be well-watered and well-fed, and he ends up living out, apparently, the rest of his life in this cave as a recluse and as an outcast. And it's certainly, believe me, not a lush place anymore. It's, it's interesting how that works out sometimes. And it certainly worked out that way for Lot. Uh, we don't know. In fact, it appears as though there's no reunion between Abraham and Lot either. He just, he just fades off the pages of the Bible. Lot doesn't remain in Zoar for very long, it appears. And he moves up to the mountain and takes up residence in a cave. What a long way from that fertile plain that he adored so much, that he had placed at such a priority that he would disrespect his uncle to take it. What, what an incredible, ironic turn. The disgusting behavior on the part of the daughters, and by the way, I'm going to include Lot in that as well. Now the text says he didn't know when they came in and when they went out, but it's, it's really difficult to excuse Lot completely there as well you can get drunk but there's only there's only there's a limit to that but lot is certainly part of this drunkenness is no excuse but that behavior indicates again that it's one thing to remove the girls from Sodom but it's another thing to remove Sodom from the girls the girls wanted offspring And they wanted to do it their way, the only way that they could figure out how to do it, instead of looking to Yahweh to give them the offspring. And that's a pretty big contrast, at least to the later Abrahamic narratives. We see a little bit of that in the beginning with Abraham trying to do it his own way as well. Now the offspring of these unholy unions became the Moabites and the Amorites, who happened to be two groups that for the next 1600 years, the next 16 centuries, were at constant hostility with the Jews didn't work out the way they had wanted it to. In a sense, then Sodom was reborn in that cave. The degeneracy that was judged was reborn. The evil that had been judged in Sodom was present in the girls and present in the cave that day. Now, there's two areas of application if you'll allow me as we close. At least uh, at least two, but I'll because of time I'll only mention these two. As Christians, As Christians, we must be careful to minister to the culture in which we find ourselves, but not to become immersed in the evil of the culture in the process. May I put it bluntly? Jesus didn't become a prostitute in order to minister to prostitutes. He showed them a better way. Now, he didn't run away from that culture. He stayed in that culture. The whole monastic thing where they were trying to get away from the cities because the cities were evil and were going to go live out in the wilderness where there will be no people and, and therefore no evil, uh, that's running from the problem. You know, we, we have been getting unless, until the Lord takes us out. We have a responsibility to minister where we are to that culture. It's easy. It's all too easy to be overcome by evil. We need to be careful here. We don't need to disengage ourselves from society like the monks did. This doesn't mean, what I'm saying this morning doesn't mean you need to go home and throw out your television, cancel your cable, or disconnect the Internet or refuse to ever go to a movie again. You see, movies, Internet, television, books, newspapers, all that can be used for good. It doesn't, it's not evil in and of itself. It's how you use it. So that's not the answer. Now, if you've done that in your family, then more power to you. But that's not what I'm advocating here this morning. But it does mean we need to exercise careful caution in how we use the things of our culture. The second application, and I'm sorry that we're so much out of time, I don't have time to dwell on this one, but we'll pick it up again at a later lesson. If God ever does make it crystal clear that it's time to leave a particular degenerate culture, then it's time to go. Don't make him grab you by the arm and throw you out. Now, again, I don't want to contradict myself in the the scope of two paragraphs. We have a responsibility to minister to the culture, and Lot had a responsibility to do that. But when it came time, and it was crystal clear, there was no doubt about it, in other words, okay? No doubt about it, that God wanted him out of there. He shouldn't have argued about it. If there ever comes a time, and I don't know if it ever will or not, but if it ever comes a time to where God says, no, I want you over here now, Then you better go over there now because he's the one in charge. You can't have such a loyalty to even a wonderful place like Houston or Texas or even the beloved country in which I was born and I hope I die. We can't can't allow our loyalty to city, state, and country to supersede our loyalty to obedience to whatever God tells us. More on this in a future lesson. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you are a good God, that you're a loving God, that that you're a fair God. We read a story like this and we just wonder about our own culture, but we wonder about ourselves as well. How much of Sodom has come into us? How much of our own culture has entered into us and we don't even know it? Father, help us to minister to the culture in which we find ourselves without becoming the culture in which we find ourselves. And this is only going to happen through the Spirit's cleansing ministry. So we ask that for all of us here today. In Jesus' name, amen.